Evening, y'all. So we're on chapter 9 of To Kill a Mockingbird. And this is a brief warning. There's very strong uh, racial language in this chapter. Uh, it's uh, when Scout finds out her father is defending a black man against a white woman who is accusing him of rape. So, with that said, there are words in here that, you know, white people just don't say. But in the vein of keeping the book honest, I will be using the words. If you do not want to listen to this chapter or listen to me read this chapter, I will have a brief synopsis about it so you can you will be able to continue on with the book. Um, but do not send me angry emails or uh, Twitter messages about it. Um, I, I'm not censoring this book. Sorry. Um, and it is not out of any sort of racial reasons. It's because these are the words that are written. So, with that being said, let's get into the book. Chapter 9, To Kill a Mockingbird, by Harper Lee. You can just take that back, boy. This order, given by me to Cecil Jacobs, was the beginning of a rather thin time for Jim and me. My fists were clenched and I was ready to let fly. Atticus had promised me he would, let, he would wear me out if he ever heard me fighting anymore. I was far too old and too big for such childish things. And the sooner I learned to hold it in, the better off everybody would be. I soon forgot. Cecil Jacobs made me forget. He had announced in the schoolyard day before that Scout Finch's daddy defended niggers, and I denied it. But I told Jim. What he, what, what he mean saying that? I asked. Nothing, Jim said. Ask Atticus; he'll tell you. Do you defend niggers, Atticus? I asked him that evening. Of course I do. Don't say nigger scout. It's a, that's common. That's what everybody at school says. Well, from now on, let it be everybody else but one. Well, if you don't want me to grow up talking that way, why you send me to that school? My father looked at me, mildly, amusement in his eyes. Despite our compromise, my campaign to avoid school had continued in one form or another since my first dose of it. The beginning of last September had brought it on sinking spells, dizziness, and mild gastric complaints. I went so far as to pay a nickel for the privilege of rubbing my head against the head of Miss Rachel's cook's son, who was afflicted with a tremendous ringworm. It didn't take. But I was worrying about another bone. Do all the lawyers defend ne Negroes, Atticus? Of course they do, Scout. Then why did C Cecil say you defended niggers? He made it sound like you were running at, running at it still. Atticus sighed. I'm simply defending a Negro. His name is Tom Robinson. He lives in that little settlement beyond the town dump. He's a member of Calpurnius Church, and Cal knows his family well. He says they're clean-living folks, Scout, and you aren't old enough to understand some things yet, but there's some high talk around this town to the effect I shouldn't do much about defending this man. 
It's a peculiar case and won't come to trial until summer session. John Taylor was kind enough to give us a postponement. Well, if you shouldn't be defending him, then why are you doing it? For a number of reasons, said Atticus. The main reason is, if I didn't, I couldn't hold my head up in this town. I couldn't represent this county in the legislature. I couldn't even tell you or Jim not to do something again. You mean if you didn't defend that man, Jim and I wouldn't have to mind you anymore? Well, that's about right. Why? Because I could never ask you to mind me again, Scout, simply by the nature of the work. Every lawyer gets at least one case in his lifetime that affects him personally. This one's mine, I guess. You might hear some ugly talk about it at school. But do one thing for me, if you will. You hold your head up high. Keep those fists down. No matter what anybody says to you, don't let them get your goat. Try fighting with your head for a change. It's a good one, even if it does resist learning. Atticus, are we going to win it? No, honey. Then why? Simply because we're licked a hundred years before we started is no reason for us to not try to win, said Atticus. You sound like Cousin Ike Finch, I said. Cousin Ike Finch was Maycobb's County's sole surviving Confederate veteran. He wore a General Hood-type beard with, of which he was in extraordinarily vain. Once a year, Atticus, Jim, and I called on him and he I would have to kiss him and it was horrible Jim said I would listen respectfully back to Atticus cousin Ike rehashed the war tell you Atticus cousin Ike would say the Mississippi compromise is what licked us but I'll I'd go through it again if I had to walk every step there and every step back just like I did furthermore we whip him this time now, in 1864, when Stonewall Jackson came round by, I beg your pardon, young folks. Old Blue Light was in heaven then. God rest his saintly brow. Come here, Scout, said Atticus. I crawled up into his lap and tucked my head under his chin. He put his arms around me and rocked me gently. It's different this time, he said. This time we ain't fighting the Yankees. We're fighting our friends. But remember this, no matter how bitter things get, they're still our friends and this is still our home. With this in mind, I faced Cecil Jacobs in the schoolyard the next day. You gonna take that bat, boy? You gonna make me first, he yelled. My folks says your daddy is a disgrace and that nigger ought to hang from the water tank. I drew a, beard, a bead on him, remembering what Atticus said, then dropped my fists and walked away. Scout's a coward, ringing in my ears. It was the first time I'd ever walked away from a fight. Somehow I thought Cecil... I would let Atticus down. Atticus so rarely asked Jim and me not to do anything for him, I couldn't be called a coward for him. 
I felt extremely noble for having remembered and remained noble for three weeks. Then Christmas came and disaster struck. Jim and I viewed Christmas with mixed feelings. On the good side was the tree and Uncle Jack Finch. Every Christmas Eve day, we met Uncle Jack at the Mekon Junction, and we'd spend the week with us. A flip of the coin revealed the uncompromising alignments of Aunt Alexandra and Francis. I suppose I should include Uncle Jimmy, Aunt Alexandra's husband, but he never spoke a word to me in his life except to say, Get off that fence! once. I never saw any reason to take notice of him. Neither did Aunt Alexandra. Long ago, in a burst of friendliness, Auntie and Uncle Jimmy produced a son named Henry, who left home as soon as it was humanly possible, married, and produced Francis. Henry and his wife deposited Francis at his grandparents every Christmas and then persuaded their own pleasures. No amount of sign could induce Atticus to let us spend Christmas Day at home. We had to go to Finch's Landing every Christmas in my memory. The fact that Auntie was a good cook was some compensation for being forced to spend a religious holiday with Francis Hancock, who was a year older than I, and I avoided him on principle. He enjoyed everything I disapproved of. He disliked my ingenious diversions, Aunt Alexandria was Atticus's sister, but when Jim told me about the changelings and the siblings, I decided that she had been swapped at birth, that my grandparents had perhaps received a Crawford instead of a Finch, had I ever harbored the mystical notions about mountains that seemed to obsess lawyers and judges, Aunt Alexandria would have been a Nogalist to Mount Everest. Throughout my entire early life, she was cold there. When Uncle Jack jumped from the train, Christmas Eve. Try it again. When Uncle Jack jumped from the train, Christmas Eve, we had to wait for the porter to hand him his two long packages. Jim always thought it was funny when Uncle Jack pecked Atticus on the cheek. They were the only two men I ever saw kiss each other. Uncle Jack shook hands with Jim and swung me high, but not high enough. Uncle Jack was a head shorter than Atticus and baby of the family. He was younger than Aunt Alexandria, and he and Auntie looked alike, but Uncle Jack made better use of his face. They were never wary of his sharp nose and chin. He was one of the few men of science who never terrified me probably because he never behaved like a doctor. Whenever he performed a minor service for Jim and me, like removing a splinter from a foot, he would tell us exactly what he was going to do and give us an estimation about how long it would hurt and explain any use of any tongs or any instruments employed. One Christmas I looked in the corners nursing a twisted splinter in my foot, preventing, permitting no one to come near me. When Uncle Jack caught me, he kept the, he kept me laughing about the preacher who hated going to church so much that every day he stood at his gate in his dressing gown, smoking a hookah and delivering five-minute sermons by any passerbyers who desired spiritual comfort. I interrupted to make Uncle Jack 
let me know when he pulled it out. But he held up the bloody splinter and pair of tweezers and said he yanked it out while I was laughing. And that was all, and that and that was what was known as relativity. What's in those packages? I asked him, pointing to the long thin parcels the porter had given him. None of your business, he said. Jim said, How's Rose Almer? Rose Almer was Uncle Jack's cat. She was a beautiful yellow female. Uncle Jack said he was one of the few women he could possibly stand permanently. He reached into his coat pocket and brought out some snapshots. We admired them. She's getting fat, I said. I think so, too. She eats all the leftover fingers and ears from the hospital. Oh, that's, that's a damn story, I said. I beg your pardon. Attic says, don't pay any attention to her, Jack. She's just trying you out. Cal says she's been cussing fluently for a week now. Uncle Jack raised his eyebrows and said nothing. I proceeded on the dim theory, aside from the innate attractiveness of such words, that if Atticus discovered I had picked them up at school, he wouldn't make me go. But at supper that evening, when I asked him to pass him pass the damn ham, please, Uncle Jack pointed at me. See me afterwards, young lady, he said. When dinner was over, Uncle Jack went into the living room and sat down. He slapped his thighs for me to come sit on his lap. I liked to smell him. He was like a bottle of alcohol and something pleasantly sweet. He pushed my bangs back and looked at me. You're more like Atticus than your mother, he said. You're also growing out of your pants a little. No, I reckon they fit just fine. You like words like damn and hell now, don't you? I said, I reckon so. Well, I don't, said Jack. Not unless it's extreme provocation connected to them. I'll be here a week. I don't want to hear any words like that while I am here, Scout. You will be in trouble if you go around saying things like that. You want to grow up to be a lady, don't you? I said, not particularly. Of course you do. Now, let's get to the tree. We decorated the tree until bedtime, and that's, and that's the night I dreamed of the two long packages for Jim and me. The next morning, Jim and I dived for them. They were, they were from Atticus, who had written Uncle Jack to get them for us. And they, they were what we had asked for. Don't point them in the house asked Atticus, when Jim pointed a picture at the wall. You'll have to teach him to shoot, said Uncle Jack. Oh, that's your job, said Atticus. I merely bowed to the inevitable. It took Atticus's courtroom voice to drag us away from that tree. I declined to let us take he declined to let us take our air rifles to the landing. I had already begun thinking of shooting Francis. And said if we made one false move he'd take him away from us for good. Finch's landing consisted of 366 steps down a high bluff and ended on a jetty. Further down the stream, beyond the bluff, were traces of old cotton lands where Finch Negroes had loaded bales and produce and loaded blocks of ice, sugar, flour, farm equipment, and feminine apparel. A two-rut road ran from the riverside, vanished among the trees. 
At the end of the road, there was a two-storied white house with porches circling it upstairs and downstairs. In its old age, our ancestor, Simon Finch, had built it to please his nagging wife, but the porches all resembled all resemblance to ordinary houses of its era ended. The internal arrangements of the Finch House were indicative of Simon's guileliness and the absolute trust in which he regarded his offspring. There were six bedrooms upstairs, four for the eight, four for the eight female children, one for the welcome Finch, the sole son, and one for the visiting relatives. Simple enough, but the daughter's rooms could only be reached by one staircase. Welcome's room and the guest staircase only by another. The daughter's staircase, which was on the ground floor, bedroom of their parents, so Simon always knew the coming and goings of his daughter's nocturnal hours. There was a kitchen separate from the rest of the house, tacked onto it by a wooden catwalk. In the backyard, there was a rusty bell on a pole, used to summon field hands or distress signal. A widow's walk was on the roof, but no widows ever walked there from it. Simon oversaw his overseer, watched the riverboats, and gazed into the lives of the surrounding landholders. They went, they went with the house. The usual legend about the Yankees, one Finch female, recently engaged, donned her complete trousseau to save it from raiders in the neighborhood. She became stuck in the door of the daughter's staircase, but it was doused with water and finally pushed through. When they arrived at the landing, Uncle Alexandria kissed Jack. Francis kissed Uncle Jack. Uncle Jimmy shook hands silently with Uncle Jack, and Jim and I gave our presents to Francis who gave us a present. Jim felt his age and gravitated the, towards the adults, leaving me to entertain our cousin. He was eight, slicked back hair. What'd you get for Christmas? I asked politely. Just what I asked for, he said. Francis had requested a pair of knee pants, a red leather book sack, five shirts, and an untied bow tie. That's nice, I lied. Jim and me got air rifles. Jim got a chemistry set. A toy one, I reckon. No, a real one. He's going to make me some invisible ink, and I'm going to write to deal in it. Francis asked what the use of that was. Well, can't you just see his face when he gets a letter from me with nothing on it? It'll drive him nuts. Talking to Francis gave me the sensation of settling slowly to the bottom of the ocean. He was the most boring child I had ever met. As he lived in Mobile, he could not inform me to school authorities, but he managed to tell everything he knew to Aunt Alexandria, who in turn unburdened herself to Atticus, who either forgot or gave me hell, whichever struck his fancy. But the only time I ever heard Atticus speak sharply to anyone was when I heard him say, Sister, I do the best I can with them. I had something to do with my going around in overalls. Uh, Sister, I do the best I can with them. It had something to do with my going around in overalls. Aunt Alexandria was fanatical about the subject of attire. I couldn't possibly hope to be a lady if I wore breeches, 
And when I said that I had wanted nothing to do in a dress, she said I wasn't supposed to be doing anything that required pants. Aunt Alexandria vision, my deplorement involving playing with a small stove, tea sets, and wearing a pearl necklace she gave me when I was born. Furthermore, I should be a ray of sunshine in my father's lonely life. I suggested I could be a ray of sunshine in my pants just as well, but Auntie said I had to behave like a sunbeam. That I was born good, but I had grown progressively worse every year. She hurt my feelings, and I set my teeth permanently on edge. But when I asked Atticus about it, he said that there were enough sunbeams in his family and to go on about my business. He didn't mind the way I, he didn't mind much the way I was. At Christmas dinner, I sat at the little table in the dining room. Jim and Francis sat with the adults at the dining table. Auntie continued to isolate me as long as Jim and Francis had graduated to the big table. I often wondered what she thought I'd do, get up and throw something. I sometimes thought of asking her if she'd let me sit at the big table with the rest of them just once, just to prove how civilized I could be. After all, I ate at home every day with no major mishaps. When I begged Atticus to use his influence, he said he had none. We were guests, and we sat where we were told to sit. He also said that Aunt Alexandra didn't understand girls much because she never had one. But her cooking made up for everything. Three kinds of meat, summer vegetables from her pantry shelves, peach pickles, two kinds of cake, ambrosia constituted in a modest Christmas dinner. Afterwards, the adults made for the living room and sat around in a dazed condition. Jim lay on the floor. I was on the back backyard. Put on your coat, Atticus said dreamily, so I didn't hear him. Francis sat beside me on the back steps. That was the best yet, I said. Grandma's a wonderful cook, she, he said Francis. She's going to teach me how. <laughs> Boys don't cook, I giggled at the thought of Jim in an apron. Grandma says all men should should learn to cook, that men should be careful with their wives and wait on them when they don't feel good, said my cousin. Well, I don't want Dill waiting on me, I said. I'd rather wait on him. Dill? Yeah? Don't say anything about it yet, but we're going to get married as soon as we're big enough. He asked me last summer. Francis hooted. What's the matter with him? I asked. Ain't there anything matter with him? You mean that little runt Grandma says runs around with Miss Rachel every summer? That's exactly who I mean. I know all about him, said Francis. What about him? Grandma says he ain't got a home. Has two. He lives in Meridian. He just gets passed from relative to relative, and Miss Rachel keeps him every summer. Francis, that's not so. Francis grinned at me. You're mighty dumb sometimes, Jean Louise. Guess you didn't know any better, though. What do you mean? If Atticus lets you run around with stray dogs, that's your own business, like Grandma says. It ain't your fault. I guess it ain't your fault if Uncle Atticus is a nigger lover besides. 
I'm here to tell you, it certainly does mortify the rest of the family. Francis, what the hell do you mean? Just what I said. Grandma says it's bad enough that he lets you all run wild, and now he's turned out to be a nigger lover, and we're never going to be able to walk the streets of Maycomb again. He's ruining the family. That's what he's doing. Francis rose and sprinted down the catwalk to the old kitchen, a safe distance, and he called, He ain't nothing but a nigger lover. He is not, I roared. I don't know how... I don't know what you're talking about, but you better cut it out this red-hot minute. I leapt off the steps, down the catwalk. It was easy to call her Francis, and I, and I take it back quick. Francis jerkily sped up the old kitchen. Nigger lover, nigger lover, he yelled. From stalking one's prey, it's best to take one's time. Say nothing, and as sure as eggs, he'll become a curious and emerge. Francis appeared at the kitchen door. You still mad, Jean Louise? he asked tentatively. Nothing to speak of, I said. Francis came, Francis came out on the catwalk. You gonna take it back, Francis? But I was too quick on the draw. Francis shot back into the kitchen and I retired to the steps. I waited patiently. I sat there perhaps five minutes till I heard Aunt Alexandra speak. Where's Francis? He's out yonder in the kitchen. He knows he's not supposed to play in there. Aunt Francis came to the door and yelled, Grandma, he's got me. she's got me in here and she won't let me out. What is all of this about, Jean Louise? I looked up at Aunt Alexandria. I haven't got him in there, Auntie. I ain't holding him. Yes, she is, shouted Francis. She won't let me out. Have y'all been fussing? Jean Louise got mad at me, Grandma, called Francis. Francis, come out of there, Jean Louise. If I hear another word out of you, I'm going to tell your father. Did I hear you say hell a while ago? Nope. I thought I did. I better not hear it again. Aunt Alexandria was on the back porch listening. The moment she was out of sight, Francis came, came up came out head up and grinning. Don't you fool with me, he said. He jumped into the yard and kept his distance, kicking tufts of grass, turning around occasionally to smile at me. Jim appeared on the porch, looked at us, and went away. Francis climbed in the mimosa tree, came down, put his hands in his pockets, strolled around the yard. Ha <laughs> ha, he said. I asked him who he thought he was. Uncle Jack, Francis said he reckoned I, I got told for me to just sit there and leave him alone. I ain't bothering you, I said. Francis looked up at me carefully and concluded that I had been sufficiently adued, subdued and croned softly. Nigga lover. At this time, I split my knuckle to the bone on his front teeth. My left impaired, I sailed into it with my right, but not for long. Uncle Jack pinned my arms to my side and said, Stand still. Aunt Alexandria administered to Francis, wiping away his tears with, his, with her handkerchief, rubbing his hair and patting his cheek. Atticus, Jim, and Uncle Jimmy came out to the back porch when Francis started yelling. 
Who started this? said Uncle Jack. Francis and I pointed at each other. Grandma, he bawled. She called me a whore lady and jumped on me. Is this true, Scout? said Uncle Jack. I reckon so. When Uncle Jack looked down at me, his features were like on Alexander's. You know, I told you if you get in trouble, if you use words like that, I told you, didn't I? Yes, sir, but, well, you're in trouble now. Stay there. I was debating whether to stand there or run. I tarried in the decision, in indecision for a moment too long. I turned to flee, but Uncle Jack was quicker. I found myself suddenly looking at a tiny ant struggling with a breadcrumb in the grass. I'll never speak to you again as long as I live. I hate you. I despise you. I hope you die tomorrow. A statement that seemed to encourage Uncle Jack more than anything. I ran to Atticus for comfort, but he said I had it coming. It was high time we went home. I climbed in the back seat of the car without saying goodbye to anyone. And at home, I ran to my room, slammed the door. Jim tried to say something nice, but I wouldn't let him. When I surveyed the damage, there was only seven or eight red marks, and I was reflecting upon the relativity when someone knocked on the door and I asked who it was. Uncle Jack answered. Go away. Uncle Jack said if we talked like that, he'd lick me again. So I was quiet. When he entered the room, I retreated to a corner and turned my back to him. Scout, he said, do you still hate me? Go on, please, sir. Why, I didn't think you'd hold it against me, I said. I'm disappointed in you. You had that coming and you know it. Didn't either. Honey, you can't go around calling people... You ain't fair, I said. You ain't fair. Uncle Jack's eyebrows went up. Not fair? How not? You're real nice, Uncle Jack. And I reckon you love... I love you even after what you did. But you don't understand children much. Uncle Jack put his hands on his hips. And looked down at me. Why do I not understand children, Miss Jean Louise? Such conduct as yours required little understanding. It was disorderly and abusive. You going to give me a chance to tell you? I didn't mean, I don't mean to sass you. I'm just trying to tell you. Uncle Jack sat down on the bed. His eyebrows came together. He peered up at me and from under them. Proceed, he said. I took a deep breath. Well... In the first place, you never you never stopped to give me a chance to tell you my side of it. You just lit right into me. When Jim and I, Jim and I fuss, Atticus doesn't just listen to Jim's side of it. He hears mine, too. And in the second place, you told me never to use words like that except in extreme provocation. And St. Anne Francis had provocated me enough, enough to knock his block off. Uncle Jack scratched his head. What is your side of it, Scout? Francis called Atticus something, and I'm, I wasn't about to take it off of him. What did Francis call him? A 
nigger lover. And I'm not very sure what that means, but the way Francis said, I'll tell you one thing right now, Uncle Jack. I, I'll be, I, I swear before God as I sit here and I'll let him say something about Atticus. He called Atticus that? Yes, sir. He did, and a lot more. He said Atticus was going to be the rumination of the family, and he let Jim and me run wild. He took a look from the look on Uncle Jack's face. From the look on Uncle Jack's face, I thought I was in for it again. And then he said, we'll see about this. I knew Francis, I knew Francis was in for it. I have a good mind to go out there tonight. Please, sir, just let it go, please. Oh, I have no intention of letting it go, he said. Alexandria should know about this. The idea of, wait till I get my hands on that boy. Uncle Jack, please promise me something. Please, sir, promise me you won't tell Atticus about this. He, he asked me one time not to let anything I heard about him make me mad. And I'd rather think we we were fighting about something else. But pro please promise. I don't like Francis getting away with something like that. He didn't. You reckon? You reckon you could tie up tie up his hands and it'd still be bleeding, son? Of course it will, baby. I know of no hand that would be more delighted to tie up. Will you come this way? Uncle Jack gallantly bowed me to the bathroom while he cleaned and bandaged my knuckles. He entertained me with a tale about a funny, nearsighted old gentleman who had a cat named Hodge and who counted all the cracks in the sidewalk. And we went to town. There now, he said. You have a very unladylike scar on your wedding ring of finger. Thank you, sir, Uncle Jack. Ma'am? What's a whore lady? Uncle Jack plunged into another tale about an old prime minister who sat in the House of Commons and blew feathers in the air to try to keep them there. To try to keep them there when all about him men were losing their heads. I guess he was trying to answer my question, but... It made no sense whatsoever. It made no sense for me to read that sentence. I have no idea what that sentence meant. Anyway. Later, when I said it was supposed to be in bed, I walked down the hall for a drink of water and heard Atticus and Uncle Jack in the living room. I'll never marry, I'll never marry Atticus. Why? I might have children. Atticus said, You got a lot to learn, Jack. You know, your daughter gave me the first lesson this afternoon. She said that I didn't understand children much. She told me why. She was quite right. Atticus, she told me how I should have treated her. Oh, oh dear. I'm sorry I romped on her. Atticus chuckled. She earned it. Don't say so don't feel too remorseful. I waited on tender hooks for Uncle Jack to tell Atticus my side of it, but he didn't. He simply murmured. Her use of the bathroom leaves 
nothing to the imagination. She doesn't know how to, the meaning of half of what she says. And she asked me what a whore lady was. Did you tell her? No. I told her about Lord Melbourne. Jack, when a child asks you something, you answer them, for God's sake. You don't make a production out of it. Children are children, but they can spot an evasion quicker than adults. An evasion simply muddles them. No, my father mused. You had the right answer this afternoon. But for the wrong reason. Bad language is a stage all children go through, and it dies with time, with time. And they learn that they're not attracting attention with it. Hot-headedness isn't. Scott got, Scout's got to learn to keep her head and learn soon what's in store for, the, for her for the next few months. She's coming along, though. Jack's, Jim's getting older, and she's following his example a good bit now. She needs existence sometimes. Jack, you've never laid a hand on her. I admit that. So far, I've been able to get her by with threats. Jack, she reminds me as well. She reminds me as well as she can. She doesn't come up to scratch half the time, but she, whew, she tries. That's not the answer, said Uncle Jack. No. The answer is that she knows. I know. She tries. And that's what makes the difference. That's what bothers me, is that she and Jim will have to absorb some ugly things pretty soon. I'm not too worried about Jim keeping his head, but Scout, as soon as, just as soon as jump on someone, as look at him, if her pride's at stake, I waited for Uncle Jack to break his promise. He didn't. Atticus, how bad is this thing gonna be? You haven't got too much of a chance to discuss it. It could be worse, Jack. The only thing we've got is a black man's word against an eel's. The evidence boils down to you did, I didn't. Jury couldn't possibly be expected to take Tom Robinson's words against an eel. Are you acquainted with the eels? Uncle Jack said yes. He remembered them. He described them to Atticus. Atticus said, yeah, but you're a generation off. The present ones are the same, though. What are you going to do then? Before, I thought, I intend to jar the jury a bit. I think we'll have a reasonable chance on appeal, though. I really can't tell at this stage, Jack. You know, I kind of hope to get through life without a case of this kind. But John Taylor pointed at me and said, You're it. Let the cut pass from you, huh? Yep. What do you think I could face my children otherwise you know what's going to happen as well as I do Jack and I hope and pray that Jim and Scout get through it without any bitterness and most of all without catching Maycomb's usual disease why reasonable people go stark raving mad when it involves a negro comes up against is something I don't pretend to understand I just hope that Jim and Scout come to me for their answers instead of listening to the town. I hope they trust me enough. Jean Louise, my scalp jumped. I stuck my head around the corner. Sir, go to bed.
I scurried around my room and went to bed. Uncle Jack was the prince of fella not to let me down. But I never figured how Atticus knew I was listening, and it was not until many years later that I realized he wanted me to hear every word he said. All right, these next few chapters are going to be the harder chapters of this book. These are the chapters that contain the most, the strongest uh, racial uh, tension. So I'm going to try and do these chapters one at a time so that people who don't want to listen to the full text I can do a short synopsis so that you may continue to enjoy the book because this book is is a wonderful wonderful piece of literature and I think everybody should listen to it so we're gonna stop on chapter 10 and I'm gonna uh, yawn it's getting to me my bedtime and uh, I'm going to write up a synopsis and probably record that tomorrow. So, um, and it's really just because I have to do it this day and age and it makes me sad because this book is beautiful. And I wish that people understood the beauty in it despite the racist words. They find, I wish they would find the beauty in, in Atticus's kindness and Scout's just playfulness and her fight for what is right. So, but anyway, I'm saying goodnight, and uh, y'all need one more time. All right. Hey, y'all.